So here's the, here's the plan. Here's what I want to do today. Um, I want to talk to you guys about what it means to make disciples. And my approach is to define what a disciple is and then what it looks like to make them. And I want to talk about something that I think is a major misunderstanding about what it means to make disciples in the process. So that's kind of where we're going to go. Hopefully I'll dispel any confusions that we have about what making disciples really looks like. Let me see if my clicker works here. Oh, yeah. All right, so to start things off, let's look at the Great Commission. This is kind of going to be our main passage. Um, let me just read that real quickly. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, if we're going to be making disciples, we need to know what disciples are. You know, imagine if I told you guys, you, you need to go and make an antithikyra mechanism. And then you were just like, on it. And then ran out. Things wouldn't turn out very well. The first question that you should have is, um, what is that? <laughs> you need to know what it is that you're supposed to be making if you're going to make it well. So I want to start by just talking about what it means to be a disciple. Now, I'm sure like that word disciple, uh, it maybe has some different meanings for different ones of us, and I don't know exactly what pops into your head when you first hear the term, but I'm guessing it's something kind of like this, right? The 12 apostles, these sort of like super Christians, these are the people that were closest to Jesus in his earthly, earthly ministry, right? And uh, maybe you feel about how you don't like really measure up to them. Uh, well, the first thing that maybe I'll point out is if you read the New Testament more carefully, you'll probably get a view of something more like this, <laughs> except there'd be four times as many of them. Uh, have you ever noticed how Jesus is always like, you guys go ahead and I'll just catch up with you later. And he's always sending like them off. Or in the Gospel of John, I always think it's funny that Jesus needs lunch and all 12 of them go to get him lunch. That doesn't seem like a job that normally requires 12 people. Um, or uh, there's a section in Luke 22 where they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, they're basically going around being like, I'm going to be chancellor of state. And it's like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to be vice regent. Well, chancellors of states are higher than vice regents. Nuh-uh. And then they have this big argument and Jesus has to talk to them about it. Or maybe the most humorous one, I think, is actually in Matthew 15. Uh, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees who are complaining about uh, the disciples not having washed their hands. And he says that it's not about what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but it's about what comes out of a person, right? Because what comes out of a person comes from their heart. And the disciples completely miss the point. And Jesus says, are you so dull? Do you not get this? Now think about it. They're thinking, if they're not understanding that Jesus is talking about the heart, and they're thinking about food that goes into the body and then comes out... That's what they think Jesus is talking about, right? So maybe like our view of what the disciples are really like is a little bit different. Um, but let's try and make some, some progress talking about what a disciple is. 
Um, the first thing that I kind of want to do is just talk about the biblical usage of the term disciple or mathetes in Greek. Throughout the New Testament, the word disciple just means Christian. They're basically synonymous with each other. Throughout the book of Acts, the disciple, that's the primary term to talk about people who are Christians. And it's kind of interesting. It's actually in Acts chapter 11 where it says there's a strange anomaly, the strange sort of thing that happens in Antioch. And what it is is that it's there that the disciples are called Christians. Everywhere else, they're just disciples. But in this one little place here, they're actually called Christians. So to be a disciple is just to be a Christian. Um, I have a, a nice Greek dictionary that my grandmother got for me, and it's been very helpful, and it kind of offers two definitions as to what a disciple is. And I have those up here. Um, it says, one who engages in learning through instruction from another. Or one who is rather constantly associated with a teacher. Now, the two things that I'll just kind of point out here real quickly, um, and we'll kind of uh, keep focusing on this, is that it says one who engages in learning. That's the sort of like continuing thing that's going on, right? It's not like somebody who engaged at one point in time and who learned something at one point in time, but it's not continuing on. It's somebody who's actively, continually engaging, right? Or again, look at the second definition. It's one who's rather constantly associated. Not somebody who's associated at one point in time, but has kind of moved on to other stuff. There's this idea of something continually going on. I think that's one of the advantages, actually, to using the term disciple rather than Christian, is that it has this ongoing aspect that's in it. To better help us to understand uh, this term disciple, though, I want to present another term that I think is synonymous and maybe more closely matches up to disciple um, in our present language, and that's the word apprentice. So um, what is an apprentice? Well, here's my definition of apprentice. It's a person who is with someone else and learning from them how to be like them. Okay, I want to um, actually give you guys an extended example. I'm going to spend a little bit of time kind of drawing this example out. Um, it's something that I used before, and I, it, I found it very helpful to me. And so I hope that it's helpful to you as well. Uh, so I have a picture up here, and you can see there's two people. There's, there's a guy and a girl. We'll call the girl Liz. And we'll call the guy Greg, okay? That'll just make things easier if I have names for them. So we have Liz and Greg. Now, Liz doesn't know how to use a multimeter. And Liz doesn't know how electricity works. Liz doesn't know how to wire an outlet. And if she tries to do those things, she winds up hurting herself and hurting other people. Greg, on the other hand, he knows how to use a multimeter. He knows how to wire an outlet. He knows the difference between AC and DC. Greg is an expert on electricity. And Liz wants to become like Greg. And so what does Liz do? She enters into this apprenticeship with him. Greg is the master electrician. She's the apprentice. She spends time with Greg, and she learns from him how to be like him. The things that he can naturally and easily do put the wires in the right place when he does an outlet, 
make sure that you have like the breakers off before you work on things. Those are things that he just naturally and easily does. And Liz spends time with him, and she develops those skills as well. Um, and it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, Liz is going to be having to ask a lot of questions of Greg. She's going to be needing a lot of help. And depending on where she started out, there might be a lot of things that she's just really confused about, right? Like maybe somebody at one point told her, you know, cars have alternators in them. And so the type of electricity that's in cars is AC, alternating current, because they have alternators in them. And houses, they have the opposite kind of electricity, so they must have DC that's in there, right? And of course, that's backwards, but maybe somebody has told Liz that. And she heard it when she was really, really young. And so when Greg teaches her and talks to her about the different types of electricity, she keeps getting them mixed up. She keeps getting confused about them. And Greg has to keep saying, no, no, that's wrong. That's not right. And Greg has to say, no, don't do it that way. Do it this way. And she forgets some of the things. She has these uh, mistaken views on things. She's wrong about stuff. And she maybe even has bad habits in place, right? Like maybe she just has this habit of like wanting to jump in and tear stuff apart. And so she wants to start working on stuff before turning the breakers off. And Greg has to keep saying, no, no, don't do that. You need to like go slowly. Think about what you're doing. Turn these breakers off first. You have to do it in this order. And so you can start to see that Liz's um, relationship with Greg, it's not based on performance, okay? She can be an apprentice and be a not very good apprentice. What makes her an apprentice is that she's adopted this attitude of trust and submission. She's with Greg, learning from him how to be like him. And she might be really slow on some things. and She might be really mistaken on some things. But as long as she has that relationship in place, she's an apprentice. Um, and there's maybe just two more things that I want to say real quick before I kind of get us off of this slide here. As I mentioned how the relationship is based off of trust and submission, okay? There are three things that are kind of like uh, very closely connected to that. In trust you have to have a firm conviction in the person's goodness, okay? What if Liz really does think that Greg knows all of this stuff about electricity, but she thinks that he's an evil, terrible, scheming person who's taken out an insurance policy on her, right? And he wants her to die so that he can get all of this money. And so he's a terrible person. And Greg says, yeah, Liz, it's safe. Go ahead and, uh, and uh, cut that wire over there. Is Liz going to cut the wire? No, <laughs> right? Because she doesn't trust him. And why doesn't she trust him? Because she doesn't have a firm belief, a firm commitment in his goodness. If you're going to trust somebody, you have to have a firm commitment in their goodness. You also have to have a firm commitment in their competency, right? If Liz thinks that Greg, is, he's a really nice guy, he's really great, but he actually has no clue what he's talking about. Somehow he got put in this job uh, of like teaching other people electricity, but he has no idea what it is that he's doing. And so Greg says, uh, yeah, it's safe. Go, go ahead and cut that wireless. Is she going to cut it? No, right? For her to trust him, for her to do the things that she says, she has to be convinced that he's good 
and that he's competent, okay? And then she has to adopt this attitude of submission, okay? If Liz goes around with this attitude thinking, I know everything that there is about electricity. I know how to do things. When Greg says, you need to do it this way, is she going to listen? No. If she has this attitude of nobody's going to tell me what to do, then she's not going to be with Greg and learn from him how to be like him. So you have to trust and you have to submit. And what's involved in trusting is this firm conviction in somebody's goodness and their competency. Um, Now, let me try and just kind of like recap real quickly what we've been saying here, okay? So an apprentice is with someone learning from them how to be like them in some area. In the example that we used, it was Liz with Greg learning from him how to deal with electricity. And it's someone who's adopted an attitude of trust and submission to someone else. They recognize that the other person is the authority. They recognize that the other person is the master, right? It's because Greg has knowledge about electricity. It's because he's the master. He knows how things work. That it gives him the right to then direct other people's actions. To say, don't do it like this. Do it this way. That's one of the things that knowledge confers upon people, is the right to direct the actions of others. So, uh, trust, submission, this conviction in the goodness and the competency of the person, and then it's also not about performance. Um, So how does this work for Christians? The question is going to be, who is it that we're supposed to be with? What's that someone? And then what's that area? What's the some area? What's the area that we're supposed to be learning from this person? And our answer is that a disciple is just a Christian apprentice. It's a person who is with Jesus, learning from him to be like him. And this requires trusting and submitting to him throughout your life, throughout every area of your life. If Liz needs to learn how to wire an outlet Well, that might take a little bit of time, but it's not going to take a really long time. If she needs to learn how to use a multimeter, that's going to take a lot longer. There's all sorts of stuff uh, that's on multimeters, how to test test, uh, capacitors, resistance, all of this stuff. She needs to know a lot more information, and it's going to require her spending far more time with Greg. Um, What's the area that we're supposed to be learning with? Life. That's going to take a while. Right? Just think about some of the things that Jesus commanded. One that I'll probably use a couple times. Bless those who curse you. How long will it take you to figure out how to do that? <laughs> at least, at least uh, 30 some years. 36 years, I think. Uh, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little while. Um, and it's again worth pointing out, you know, just like Liz might have had some fundamental confusions about how things like electricity work. You know, some of us start with some real confusions about how life works. You know, people have told us to go shove a fork in an outlet, maybe literally, but maybe figuratively. Now think about that figuratively. People telling you to do things that will only hurt yourself and hurt other people. And that's kind of the world that we live in with all of these people that think they know how to do stuff and they really don't, that have been fed misinformation and are going around hurting themselves and hurting other people. There's a lot of correction that needs to take place here. Okay, so with these things in mind, with what a disciple is, 
I want to kind of look back at the Great Commission. But before we look back at the Great Commission, we're going to look at a slightly lesser commission. Uh, and this is Joseph's commission, okay? So I want you guys to imagine, right, that I have uh, the Joseph's commission here, and I say, I am your boss. I'm the guy that's in charge. And therefore, since I'm in charge, I'm telling you, go and clean my car. Washing the outside with nice bubbly soap and vacuuming the entire inside. Now, how many things did I tell you to do? Did I tell you to do three things? Clean the car, wash the outside, and vacuum the inside? Not really. I really only told you to do one thing. I told you to clean my car, and then I spelled out what cleaning my car involves, okay? The process of cleaning my car is just the process of washing the outside with a nice bubbly soap and vacuuming the inside. That's what I mean by cleaning my car. Um, uh, Kathy's probably the only one that'll appreciate this. But these, those ING words, those are participles. And they kind of, they're these uh, fancy things that allow a phrase or sentence, usually it's kind of like a verb, to modify something else. It explains it. So just like an adjective modifies a noun, the tall man, it tells us something about the man. These things tell us something about the process of cleaning my car. It tells us what it involves, what it's made out of, okay? Um, so remember to look for those ING things. They're not separate things devoid of the first part. It's not clean my car and then also wash it and then also vacuum it. It's no one thing, clean my car. And what that looks like is doing these things here, washing the outside and then uh, vacuuming it. Okay, so let's look at what Jesus says again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You notice the similarity between this one and the previous one? How many things has Jesus commanded us to do? One, make disciples. And what those ING words, the baptizing and the teaching, what they do is they spell out what making disciples looks like. Um, uh, there's a commentary on the book of Matthew by R.T. France. And he says that the section where it says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's not just something that we're supposed to say like when we baptize over people. But what it's about is it's about the people's threefold allegiance that they have in life now. These are the three people who you're going to be spending your time with. These are the three people who you're going to be learning from in order to become like them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are the people that you're submitting to. And then the teaching part, right? Again, this is that process of learning from them to be like them. That's what's involved here. Making disciples, it's just these two things. And what I kind of want to really say is that unfortunately... That mistaken view of treating these as separate things as something that's relatively popular 
in the church. To see Jesus is commanding us to do one thing, make disciples, and then another thing that's totally separate from that, baptize them, and then a third thing that's totally separate from that, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. And usually what that does is it turns making disciples rather into being apprentices, into just verbal confessors. People who've made some sort of statement and it does nothing else. They don't spend their time with this person. They don't learn from them how to be like them. They just said something one time. And then what you're supposed to do is after that, well, you're supposed to dunk them in water. You say these things over top of them. And then, well... I don't really know what we're supposed to do after that, (laughs) right? I guess you're supposed to kind of behave nicely. I mean, we don't want people doing bad, but are they really going to learn to do everything that Jesus has commanded them? Well, I mean, that sounds awful hard. And thank goodness it's optional, right? We can be a disciple. We don't have to do all of this stuff. And that's the approach that people have taken, is that these are three separate things, And what I want to say is that this has really negatively impacted how we see each other, both within the church and people outside of the church. And so I just want to, like, kind of look at this wrong view a little bit more carefully. So making disciples, the wrong view. Uh, The wrong view is that, again, the making disciples, it just means making these verbal confessors confessors, right? Somebody who said something at some point in time, uh, who's maybe said a prayer. And the way that things are spelled out after that is it usually looks something kind of like this. Um, You've accrued some guilt, right? Uh, You sinned, you did bad stuff, and guilt is kind of like this debt from your sin. And you can't pay that debt. And the good news is that Jesus paid that debt. And if you just make a verbal confession, then your debt will be erased. And now you can go to heaven. The first thing that I want to say to kind of add to this is that the problem with this view isn't so much that it says things that are false as that it gives a wrongly limited picture. I want you to think about it this way. Suppose you asked me to say what a motorcycle is. And I say a motorcycle is a thing that only has an engine. That's it. The problem is the restriction that I put on there. Motorcycles do have engines. That part isn't false. It's that I've limited this view. There's lots of other things that have engines. Snowmobiles, they have engines. Dump trucks, they have engines. Trains, they have engines, right? There's all of these other things. The fact that it has wheels, that it has only two wheels. It can't have more wheels than that. Those are all important for defining what a motorcycle is. The same thing is true here. Um, Do you have a guilt from your sins? You bet your sweet bippy you do. You know, can you pay for it? No, you cannot. Did Jesus do something about that? Absolutely. Has he opened the way to life, eternal life? Yes, he has. None of those things are false. The problem is in the restriction. There's actually more to it than just that. And I want to try and kind of like walk through that. Um, Again, the way that I put it up here on the slide, the real issue with the above picture is that it is not the whole picture. That's the problem. And it's often presented as being the whole picture. 
That's it. There's nothing else. The baptism, the learning to do what Jesus commanded, those are all optional things, you know. You should probably do it, but it's not really necessary. It's not part of what it means to be a Christian here. Um, and uh, before I kind of look at some passages that I think will help us to kind of dispel this false notion, I just want to point out a couple implications of this wrong view, this kind of verbal confessor view that I have up here. This view would say that we, um, while we have, uh, while we have um, remissions of our guilt, while the guilt has been taken care of, we don't have deliverance from sin. Okay? You have deliverance from guilt, but not from sin. I want you to think again about, like, Liz and Greg, right? Okay? So Liz doesn't know how to wire an outlet. She doesn't know how to do all of these things with electricity. And she's hurting herself, and she's hurting other people. And this class with Greg, it's way more than she could ever pay. She can't afford it. She can't pay for it. She's hopelessly in debt and bankrupt. Okay? Is her bankruptcy a problem? Yes, it is. Does it need to be dealt with? Yes, it is. But imagine if Greg said, Liz, I'll pay for you to take the class. I'll erase your debt. And Liz said, thank you very much, and then just walked off and left Greg standing there. Was her debt taken care of? Yes, it was. But what's the problem? She still doesn't know how to wire an outlet. She still doesn't know how electricity works. You know, our guilt is a problem, but more so is the fact that we're broken. That's why we have guilt to begin with. Our sin is the fundamental problem, and that needs to be dealt with. We need to learn not how to wire an outlet, although maybe some of us do, but we need to learn how to live, right? We need to learn how to live rightly. Um, and so the above picture um, it doesn't actually give us deliverance from sin. Um, note that like, if the above is the whole story, there's no need for Jesus to be raised from, from the dead or for the Spirit to be sent, right? What did Jesus do on the cross? He paid the price. Well, if the only, if the only problem is our debt and the price was paid there, why did we need anything else to happen after that? Right? We need other stuff. We need help after that because we need Jesus, right? What Liz needs is she needs Greg. That's the real thing. She needs him. And so this stuff that's keeping her from Greg, it needs to be dealt with. But again, more fundamentally, she needs to enter into that relationship with him. Um, and uh, this is why we have passages like Romans 5.10. It's one of the ones that we just don't really have time to look at, but it says that we're saved by the life of Christ, right? Is his death important? Yes, it is. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm saying his life is important too, and the sending of the Spirit is important too, okay? We need to learn how to live. We need to enter into that relationship with him. Um, and then lastly, uh, right, like it kind of gives us a picture of this, that Christ died for me, but now I live life on my own. You know, again, I guess I'm supposed to kind of learn how to do these Christian-y things and to obey some of the teachings of Jesus, although it doesn't really matter what I do anymore, I guess, supposedly, because the debts have been paid. If the debt's been paid and I get to go to heaven, then what's it matter if I do other stuff? My debt's been taken care of. 
right? And then people kind of scratch their heads, and it's like, well, you're supposed to behave, <laughs> right? Um, now, I, I want to contrast that with, with a couple passages from Scripture. Uh, the first one is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, look at the things that we have in there. Um, a confession of our sins. Uh, first of all, um, uh, that word confession there is a really interesting kind of word. It takes on this sense of confession after the New Testament comes on, after Christianity comes on. Before then, what it really means is an expression of allegiance. Now, if you put that in, that's really hard to kind of make sense of. If we expression of allegiance our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? What's it getting at there? Well, what it's getting at is this admission that we don't know how to do things, right? That's that aspect of submission. What is it that Liz say? She says, I don't know how to wire an outlet. I've been making a mess of things. I've been shocking myself. I've been burning people's houses down. I've been doing everything wrong because I don't know how to do stuff, right? It's a confession. It's, this, and, uh, it's a confession of her ignorance, of her failures, and an admission of Greg's authority, right? So what's really involved in that, in that confession of our sins, is certainly a recognition of our wrongdoings, but also this expression of allegiance right? This trustful submission to Jesus. Um, and that says he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Do we need forgiven for our sins? Again, yes, we do. Does John put a period after that? No, he says other things, doesn't he? Um, uh, he will be uh, faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And he will teach us how to live rightly. He will teach us how to be like him. Um, let's look at another passage here real quick. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Um, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It forgives us of our sins even though we continue to say yes to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live uncontrolled, upside down, and ungodly lives in this present age, but it'll be okay because things will get set right in the next world. No, salvation is for here and now. It continues into eternity as well, right? The idea is that, um, again, it teaches us to say no to these things right here, right now, to live rightly. Um, just like Greg teaches Liz here and now how to wire an outlet, how to do what's good and what's right. Um, and it redeems us from all wickedness. That aspect of redemption, that has, again, this idea of buying somebody out of debt, 
Again, sin, it's a problem. Guilt, it's a problem. Both of those things need to be dealt with. Um, and uh, let's see here. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and skip kind of to the next, next couple here. So 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, I have verses 1, 3, 3 through 4, and then 17, just to save a little bit of space here. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Some people want to put a period there and stop. But it continues on. Uh, that, was, uh, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then Paul talks about the importance of Christ being resurrected and living continually now. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Now, you said Christ died for our sins. Weren't they taken care of then, just in the dying part? The guilt part, yes. That ongoing not knowing how to live, doing the wrong thing, not being purified, not living righteous lives, that gets dealt with as we live with Jesus and we learn from Him how to be like Him. We don't just need somebody who died and took care of the debts, though we do need that. We also need somebody who continues to live with us and who says, don't do things this way. It's much better if you do it this way. Here's how you need to think. Here's how you need to act. Um, the last verse that we're going to look at here real quickly is uh, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, I, I just want to point out a couple things. We talked about trust and submission, right? And uh, the things that we need for trust is to have this firm conviction in the goodness and the competency of somebody. What's it talking about? When it talks about Jesus being the Son of God, that's his competency and his authority, right? That's who Jesus is. He's the person who has the power. He's the person who has the knowledge. What's it talking about when Paul says that he's been crucified with Christ? That's that attitude of submission that's in there. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that there's a helpful thing of saying something like, you know, um, Christ died so that we could die with him. Christ died. Christ submitted to the will of the Father in every area of life, including death on a cross, so that we could learn to submit to the will of the Father in every area of life. Okay, so we have uh, the statement of competency, authority, submission, and then what's there? Who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the goodness, it's the competency, and it's the submission. And of course, that's really like that idea of faith is about trusting in him. Because of his competency and because of his goodness, we can commit ourselves to learning from him to live like him. So... Making disciples, again, to kind of like recap a couple things almost. Making disciples, it's about apprentice making, right? It's not about just making verbal confessors. It's about making people who are formed in the image of Christ, 
who know who they're spending their time with and who they're becoming uh, like, and to, uh, 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 to aid them and to guide them in that process, right? And what we, what's really important is that we just have to remember what it is that we're making. We're making people who are like Jesus. That's what we're engaging in. Um, and so it's about making people who abide in the Trinitarian presence of God and live their life from there, naturally and easily doing the things that Jesus commanded. You know, that's one of the things that you see in the Scriptures is Jesus never did what was right through gritted teeth. It was always just the natural response to love people and to forgive people and to be patient with people. Um, and uh, I hope that you can kind of see how this applies to both like outsiders, people outside of the church, and then also people inside of the church. Some people are completely unaware of the fact that they need Jesus, that they don't know how to live life without him, right? Just like there might be some people that think they're doing great wiring all of these outlets, you know? They're like, yep, your outlets are good, and they leave, and the house burns down, and they go to another one, and it's like they just have no clue where they're at. They have no clue what they're doing. That's why we use that terminology of being lost. A person who is lost isn't somebody who doesn't know where they're going. It's a person who doesn't know where they currently are, right? And so we, uh, <clears throat> we help people to realize where they are, the kind of person that they are. They're the kind of person who can't live, right? And there's other people that are starting to just dimly become aware of their need, Right? They've been trying to do what's right, and they've been finding they just can't do it. Right? And they start becoming aware of their great need. And so we help those people. And then there's other people that have gone further on, you know, maybe further on than what we have, that know that they can't do things without Jesus. And yet they're still going deeper and deeper. They've got the outlet part down. They've got, like, you know, uh, how to use the multimeter down. And they're learning about three-phase electricity, right? There's always more to learn. Life is such a big topic. There's always something that we can learn from Jesus. And so what we're about is we're about helping those outsiders, those insiders, in this process of discipleship. And I think that this kind of raises a couple questions. How do we apply this to insiders, to kind of people inside of the church? How do we apply this to outsiders, to people outside of the church? And then where should our focus be? Where should it be, on people inside of the church or outside of the church? Um, let me just try and kind of walk through this real quickly. Um, so the first thing that I want to say is that I think our focus should be on people inside of the church. That's the first and fundamental thing. And let me just kind of explain why I think that is. Uh, and I want to do it by talking about what Jesus says in John 16, 5 about abiding in him. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I want you to think about this. If I walk through the woods and I find this little thing that's fallen off of a tree that's roughly straight and I pick it up, that's a stick, okay? When I look up at the tree and I see the trunk branch and there's a little thing that comes off of it, what is that called? A branch. Why is it one thing when it's on the ground and another thing when it's on the tree? The difference is that a branch has life in it. If you cut a branch, it'll repair itself. 
A branch is capable of doing things. It's capable of bearing fruit. It's capable of giving out life to other people. A stick doesn't do anything. You break it, you scratch it, it doesn't repair itself. Left alone, it just slowly deteriorates and gets worse and worse and falls apart and disintegrates. Right? The fundamental thing to bearing truth is to have that life flowing through you. Um, and so what we're about is about like um, making branches. Making branches that then bear fruit. Teaching people to abide in Jesus' presence. Again, like that aspect of like it's not something that happens once. It's this continuing thing that's involved in abiding. And I kind of have like a little catchy slogan up here that says, changed people, change people. If you can get people to start abiding in Jesus and learning from him how to be like him, they'll wind up changing the people that they're around, right? And uh, the wrong view of discipleship, that like discipleship is some sort of secondary option for Christians, or it's only for the advanced Christians or something like that, that it's not part of being a Christian, um, that wrong view um, of discipleship and disciple-making has been detrimental to both the people inside of the church and those outside of it. I want to put up a quote real quickly from Dallas Willard. I don't think you'd get through without a Dallas Willard quote, did you? Um, he says uh, uh, in this article called Rethinking Evangelism, the leading assumption in America is that you can be a Christian but not a disciple. That has placed a tremendous burden on a mass of Christians who are not disciples. We tell them to come to church, participate in our programs, and give money, but we see a church that knows nothing of commitment. Just mess up the music a couple Sundays and see what happens. But we see a church that, uh, oh, yeah, sorry, we see a church that knows nothing of commitment. We have settled for the marginal, and so we carry this awful burden of trying to motivate people to do what they don't want to do. Um, it's an awful burden to the people because they're trying to do it in their own strength. They're trying to be sticks that bear fruit. They have no life in them, and they can't do it, right? And we need to rethink how we see discipleship here. What is it that we're making? People who are with Jesus, who are learning from him to be like him. And if you do that, um, then you wind up producing other people, um, that are kind of like that. So, uh, again, my other like little pithy saying that I have here, if you want to get people into heaven, get heaven into people, right? One of the things that we see is, uh, throughout the scriptures, I think, is that the attractiveness of God is often shown through his people. Um, there's a passage that I don't have time for um, in Ezekiel 36, right? Where God says, I'm going to send my spirit among you. And the name that you have profaned, the name that you have made look disgusting and repulsive to other people, I'm going to show it as being wonderful and beautiful through you. Right? It's through having people whose lives are radically transformed, who live the way that Jesus lives, that it impacts other people. Um, and really, the um, primary function of the people of God is to be a people in whom he dwells, right? If that happens, reaching out to other people is the natural result. But the fundamental thing is dwelling, abiding, being with him, learning from him. And I want to put up a, a passage from Philippians 2 here. It says, "...continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling." 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become a blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then, after having learned to do the things that Jesus has commanded, then you will shine among them like stars in the universe as you hold firmly to the word of life. Some of the alternate readings is as you hold out to them the word of life, right? Um, In closing, uh, I just want to kind of talk about discipleship, the church, and the world. Um, First of all, if you try and do what Jesus said, like again, that example of bless those who curse you, you're going to find out that you need help, a lot of help. And that's where the church comes in. It's a bunch of us who need a lot of help learning to do these things. And what we do is we engage in the process of helping each other. Learn to do what Jesus commanded us. You can't do it alone. We need other people. And God and his infinite wisdom has ordained for people like you and me to help each other rather than for him to do it directly. I don't know why sometimes he chooses to use me, why he chooses to use you, but that's what he's done, right? And so we need each other. Um, And the thing is, is that like uh, the church is for discipleship. The church is that place where we meet, we encourage each other, we sing songs, hymns, we encourage, we love, we give to people that are in need, we learn to do those things here together as a group. We learn to do those things that Jesus commanded us to do. Um, And the good news is discipleship, though, is for the world. It's for everybody. Jesus is taking on apprentices. That boss, that person at work, you know, that uh, annoying cashier, uh, that annoying family member or whatever, Jesus is taking on apprentices. And he wants to take them on too. And uh, part of becoming like Jesus is becoming a disciple maker. Jesus takes on apprentices, and if you're going to become like Jesus, that will wind up involving you taking on apprentices. Okay, Um, and uh, I kind of just have a caution here. Uh, When we try and love God without loving others, we find that we turn loving God into ourselves. We make God more and more like us and more and more like what we want, and we're really just loving ourselves. Loving God and loving others is always intimately bound to each other. And uh, we need to intentionally present the gospel to those outside of the church. I haven't really had much time to talk about this as I felt like I needed to discuss these important things of what it means to be a disciple and this wrong view of making disciples. But none of what I'm saying is meant to imply in any way that we shouldn't be intentional about presenting the gospel to other people. We absolutely should be. Um, Uh, And we need to be doing that, I think, first and foremost through our life by being people who live like stars in this broken and crooked uh, world where we shine out, where we're the city on the hill, where we're this wonderful fragrance to other people. Um, We're the salt. That's what we're called to do is through our life, through abiding in him, through learning from him to be like him, we go out and we live around other people and people say, I want to be like that. 
right? Um, <clears throat> and then we also do this through teaching what Jesus preached. We do that here publicly from the pulpit, but we also need to do that privately to people that are outside of the church to explain to them what it is that Jesus said. That's one of the best ways of recognizing somebody's authority, right? Is when you do it their way and it works. And you recognize that person knows what they're talking about. And so we explain to them what it is that Jesus said, what it is that we're supposed to do. Um, and we should always be presenting the gospel as just this picture of a life of apprenticeship to Jesus, which is this very instant available to them. doesn't matter how much you know about electricity. doesn't matter where you're at. Greg's taken on people. doesn't matter how much you know about life. doesn't matter how big of a mess you've made. Jesus is taking on apprentices. Um, uh, that's kind of all that I have. I know I went over just a little bit, so let me pray, and then I'll dismiss you guys. Lord Jesus, we just uh, thank you so much for taking on people like us. Lord, I thank you um, for taking on me. Lord, I can be so slow to learn things sometimes. Lord, I just ask that you would help me and that you would help everybody else in this room to live with you, to learn from you, to be more like you. Lord, we want to trust you. We're convinced of your goodness and of your power, and we submit to you. Lord, we pray that you would just fill us with your life, and that through that life, we would, um, our lives would spill out to those that are around us, that we would influence people for your purpose, that we would draw them to you, that we would show them that they don't have to keep hurting themselves and other people, that there's a better way, and just point, you, uh, point them to you as the master of living. Lord, we just thank you for this. We ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to apply these things to our lives, and that you would help us uh, to reach out to other people. That's in your name we pray. Amen. And I'll uh, do the uh, benediction dismissal. I just knocked my thing out. There we go. Sorry. I'm going to do the doxology from Jude. Um, I'm actually going to start a little bit earlier. I'm going to start in verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus to, uh, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen.